My name is Sandy. Um, I'll be reading scripture this morning. We are reading in the book of Isaiah, chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. For us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks. Thanks. Well, good morning. Good to see all of you. Welcome to Disciples Church. It is good to have you uh, with us today. My name is Jonathan Mosier, and it's my privilege to open the word uh, for you and with you this morning. And so turn, if you're not already there, to Isaiah chapter 9. And if you have a Bible, I would encourage you to go ahead and open it. We're going to read from um, a couple different couple different places in Scripture this morning, and so it'll be beneficial uh, for you to have that out and available to look at. As a kid who uh, came of age in the 90s, um, the, the superhero movie scene was not quite set yet. I mean, we had, uh, certainly going back a couple decades, we had access to the Christopher Reeve Superman movies, and then in the 90s we were all excited when the Michael Keaton Batman series uh, came along, and then we were less excited when the George Clooney Batman uh, came along, and so that was the era in which um, I grew up and kind of fell in love with superhero movies. And now... We live in an age where superhero movies are readily available and always coming out. Um, So much so that as the Disney Plus streaming service launched a couple of weeks ago, we were there on day one, because I've got a three-year-old and a five-year-old boy, and they're right in the wheelhouse. So if you're a kid and you're into superhero movies, I mean, there is no better time in the history of man to be alive than right now, and all of this stuff is is at your fingertips. And as I was thinking about that whole idea this last week, I mean, the best hero stories are those that begin with a compelling origin story, where where somebody came up in a difficult situation, they, they came up in a rough environment, they had hardship and adversity in front of them, and what you find is that over the course of that story, the individual begins to overcome that adversity and use the powers or the giftings or the skill sets that they have to set things right. And I think there's a deeper reason why stories like that resonate with us. I think part of the reason that stories like that, and whether it's a modern superhero uh, telling or, or whether it's the Iliad and the Odyssey going back thousands of years, I mean, you can look at the great epic stories across the history of mankind and realize that those stories resonate deeply within humanity. And the reason why our hearts resonate that way is that we understand both individually and collectively that things are broken and need to be set right. See, on some level or another, the reason those stories ring true to us is because they are reminiscent or they mirror the greatest story that was ever told. And I say that not to demean Jesus to being uh, a mere superhero, but to say that on some level or another, the thing that's ringing true with our soul is a recognition that we needed help and we needed rescue. And the gospel, in the words of one author, the gospel, because it is a true story, means that all the best stories will be proved in the ultimate sense true. 
that ultimately goodness does prevail. And not just some sort of mere sense of right and wrong, but that in the truest, deepest sense, everything that is broken will be set straight. And so as we come into Isaiah chapter 9 this week, this is our second week um, looking at this text and specifically looking at verses 6 and 7. Uh, And we're looking at the four titles that are given to the Messiah. We're looking at these descriptions that really are specifically given to Jesus Christ. And this morning, the, the title that we're talking about is the title, Mighty God. And if you noticed in the songs that we sang, there's a declaration about who that mighty God is. And the opening words of the text that Sandy read for us just a moment ago really point us back to the very first foretelling of the Messiah, which comes in Genesis chapter 3. And if you remember the story, this is just after Adam and Eve have sinned. The serpent has come along and he has, he has given them this lie that if they will partake of the fruit that God had specifically forbidden, they would become like God himself. And so they indulge in that lie, they indulge in the fruit in which they had been told not to partake. And so uh, in the portion where we pick up in Genesis chapter 3 verse 15, God has just told Adam and Eve what the consequences of their sin would be. And then he says in Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity, speaking here uh, to Satan, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall crush your head and you shall bruise his heel. And he's talking, of course, about the fact that the heel of Jesus Christ in a manner of speaking is bruised when he goes to the cross and dies in that moment where seemingly all hope for humanity is lost. But in a far deeper sense, in God's beautiful sense of irony, he uses the death of Christ to actually bring about the death of death. That sin itself is defeated in that moment at the cross. And so it's that story that Isaiah is pointing to. And what he's reminding us here is of the dual nature of Christ. So if you look at what he says in Isaiah 9-6, he begins by saying, For to us a child is born. That this king who was going to set everything right, the one who was going to restore what was broken and fix what had been torn down, this king wasn't walking onto the scene as a conquering hero, but he was walking in as a child born to a poor and lowly mother. And we know the line that Jesus was born into. He was born into the line of Abraham, the doubter, of Jacob, the deceiver, of Rahab, the harlot, of Ruth, the idolater, of David, the adulterer, and of Mary, the impoverished, who had miraculously conceived Jesus by the Holy Spirit. See, Jesus was well acquainted with the poor and the lowly. And he was well acquainted with those who desperately needed redemption. And so while we look at his lineage and we see the faithfulness in those individuals' lives and we see the amazing works that God did in their lives, what we see is that it was ultimately God who was doing those things. That those individuals were not in and of themselves heroes, but people that were absolutely dependent on the work of God in their lives. But Isaiah doesn't just stop by mentioning that a child would be born. He goes on to say, a son is going to be given. That through this child who had ordinary human parents, he also had a divine origin. That he was born of a virgin. 
And just that truth is so commonplace to our ears that we don't stop to give consideration to the true miracle that that entails. And what it points us to is the fact that Jesus wasn't just another mere human. He wasn't just a good individual. He wasn't a religious man. He wasn't even just given to Mary in this sense, but he was given to all of us. So Isaiah is going to paint a picture for us where he uses these different labels and he says, I'm trying to communicate to you who this Messiah is going to be. And it's a difficult task for Isaiah because he hadn't seen Christ in the flesh. But he says, I'm trying to paint a picture so that you'll know who this Messiah is. And he says, he's a wonderful counselor. He's the mighty God. He's the everlasting Father. He's the Prince of Peace. That's what Dave mentioned last week, that that God himself wrote himself into the mess that we had made to rescue us from the consequences that we deserved. And understand this, only someone of his earthly heritage and of his divine origin could bring about that ultimate redemption. So do you understand, as we, as we begin thinking about this this morning, do you understand that Jesus coming onto the scene is not an afterthought? I mean, this isn't, this isn't plan B because humanity messed things up. Do you understand that before time began, before the world was set into motion, God's plan was to send Christ. This was God's means of bringing about the saving love that Paul spoke about so eloquently when he said before the foundations of the world were even formed, God had chosen us to belong to him. See, that's what enabled Christ to be the wonderful counselor that we talked about last week. That if he knew our deepest need, the need for reconciliation and restoration and regeneration, if he knew those needs before we were ever even a thought in this world, then of course he knows our need in the moments before we even think to ask. And so what we're going to talk about this week is the fact that the boy in the manger was in fact the mighty God. Think about the implications of what that means. Because what it means is that as, as much as the title Wonderful Counselor conveys the supernatural wisdom that comes through Jesus Christ, the title Mighty God conveys his power to accomplish it. So my hope in this morning is that you'll walk away with a renewed sense of the beauty and the majesty and the wonder of this Christ who is the mighty God. And so I think in order to do that, we need to look at Scripture itself for the clarity that only it can bring. Because imagine for a moment trying to understand the implications of Isaiah chapter 9 without the New Testament lens. Imagine trying to understand the kind of person that Isaiah is describing if we didn't already know about the person of Christ that was going to come. I mean, how is it that Isaiah can even think to try to communicate the majesty of Jesus without having seen Jesus? And it's exactly that question that Peter addresses in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 10. I'll read it for you. You're welcome to turn there if you like. But Peter says it this way. He says, Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. 
Now here's what he's saying in this. He's saying, Peter's reminding us that as Isaiah and the other prophets were writing their prophecies foretelling the coming of Jesus Christ, they desperately wanted to know when and how these things were going to take place. And God, in his generosity and in his grace, gave them the Spirit of Christ by whom they wrote these things so that they could give us an accurate description of who this Messiah is going to be. So think about this just for a minute. I mean, you and I are in a position where we're able to look back and see the fulfillment of the prophet's prophecies concerning the coming of the Messiah. We're able to see the end of the story from the beginning. We've been given the whole book. We've been given the whole picture. But think how this must have read to Isaiah as he wrote it. When he was writing words, like what he said in chapter 53 of his book, He had no form or majesty that we should look at him. And he had no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised. And we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken smitten by God and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. And Isaiah wrote those words, perhaps not even fully understanding how all of that was going to play out in the life of Christ, but as we look back on it, We can imagine Christ on the cross. We can read the account as he was beaten and torn apart. See, through the lens of the New Testament, we have better seats to view this story than Isaiah had. Because we take for granted in our modern understanding and with our familiarity with Christianity, we take for granted that the legacy of a homeless carpenter who was killed on a cross has outlived the legacy of the Roman Empire itself. Could Isaiah have even imagined that something that miraculous would happen? And certainly through the Spirit of Christ in him, he did. But Isaiah wrote everything that he wrote knowing this. Here's what Peter continues to say. Listen to these words, 1 Peter 1, 12. Here's what it says. It was revealed to them, that's the prophets, that they were serving not themselves, but you, in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. So he says, understand that the prophets understood that they weren't going to be able to see the whole story, but they wrote these things understanding that there were going to be a people who looked back on the life of Christ, that we could see all of the pieces in place, and that the the beauty and the wonder of the gospel is so miraculous, that it's so above everything else, that the angels themselves long to look into it. They desire to understand it, that the angels, in a sense desire the very thing that we've been freely given, to see the beauty and the wonder of the gospel story. 
So Isaiah didn't know exactly how or when these things were going to come to pass, but he knew that there was a time that would come when people like us would be able to look back and see all of this having played out. And this is what leads Jesus to say in Matthew chapter 13, but blessed are your eyes for they see and your ears for they hear. For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people longed to see what you see and did not see it. And to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Do you understand the magnitude of the gospel that we so frequently take for granted? And the whole Bible is devoted to communicating the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And it's what the Gospels in particular are devoted to pointing us to, that, that Matthew in his own way tells us how Jesus fulfilled the role of the Messiah to the Jews, that Mark writes to introduce a non-believing world to Jesus Christ, that Luke writes to people who are skeptics and non-believers and doubters, and he gives them evidence and firsthand witness of the accounts of the life of Jesus Christ, and that John writes to show that Jesus is in fact the God-man, the mighty God that we're talking about. And so we find this in the opening words of the book of John. You can turn there if you like because we'll be here for a while. John chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, a familiar verse to many of us, and here's what it says. In the beginning was the Word, and by the way, we sang about this this morning, if you notice, the Word became flesh. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Verse 14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And when you see the word, word, in John chapter 1, understand that that's a reference to Christ himself. And he's saying, if you want to understand who Jesus is, here's who he is. He was in the beginning. Before anything was made and before anything was created, in fact, nothing in this world that exists would exist outside of his creation. And if you want to know who he is, he is God. And he is with God the Father, giving us an insight into the Trinity that we spoke about a few weeks ago. So where was he? He has always been. Who is he? He is God. He is one with the Father. And then verse 14, that this Jesus came and put on flesh. Have you ever stopped to think about the fact that Jesus is co-eternal with the Father? And do you understand that Jesus' life did not begin 2,000 years ago? That he pre-existed time and creation. That the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit lived together in perfect communion for eternity past. And that's something that if you just stop to think about just blows our minds. I mean, we, we can scarcely wrap our mind around the notion. And that there is never a point in the history of time, past or forward, where Jesus Christ is not coexistent with the Father and the Spirit. And there's a huge theological idea around that. It's, it, we, we really wrap it up in two words. One is the word transcendent, and one is the word imminent. 
The word transcendent is really what Dave prayed about earlier today where he said the, the idea that, uh, that there is no one above God. That God is above everything else. That he exists by no creation and by no dependency on anything else in the world. That he is self-defining and self-existent. And in human terms, I mean, understand how this works. We are defined by all kinds of external pressures and forces. I mean, we're defined by our birth and by our family and by our names. And we're defined by our race and our ethnicity and our nationality. And we're defined by our skill sets and our giftings and our abilities. But do you understand that you had almost nothing to do with any of that? That those were all things that you were born into, that you were defined by something that you could not control. God doesn't exist like that. He is self-defining. He stands above and beyond all of it. He is transcendent. But the other side of that coin is that he is also imminent. Not only is he transcendent, but he's imminent. He is among us. And that is a uniquely Christian ideal. All other religions and all other philosophies, even if they have a concept of a great creator being, they lack this notion of a personal God who interacts and cares for and involves himself with his people. Not a far off, distant creator God who set the world into motion and let it spin out of control. Not a God who's standing waiting to be appeased by our offerings or our religious observances, but a God who is willing to come in human form, that Jesus himself comes, that the mighty God himself steps into time and steps into our story. And look how John continues as he continues to share the opening accounts of his book. If you flip to John chapter 2, what you find is the story of Jesus at the wedding feast. And this is uh, commonly known as Jesus' very first miracle. He's gathered at this wedding feast. The bride and the groom are there. They've invited all their friends and all their family. Everyone from around the town has come to this place to celebrate and, and, and to be joyous with this couple as they betroth themselves one to another. And so Jesus is there with his mother Mary the feast and they're partaking in the wine and the food and all of the good things that are happening and at one point Mary comes to Jesus and says hey by the way they they ran out of wine and do you remember Jesus's response in that moment he he turns to the attendants and he says I want you to go out and I want you to gather six of these large vessels made of stone and, and the Bible even specifically tells us that each one of those vessels carry between 20 and 30 Gallons. So about 150 gallons of water is what Jesus tells these attendants to go gather up. And as they gather it up and they bring it to him, he says, I want you to go take this to the master of the feast, the sommelier. I want you to go find that guy. And I want you to go dip a glass into that water and hand it to him. And as they do that, they hand the master of the feast the best tasting glass of wine he has ever had to drink. And as the wine is distributed to all who are gathered, they marvel at how amazing this wine is. Understand what's happening in a moment, in an instant. Jesus miraculously makes wine out of water and makes wine that is better than that which has been aged for years. And in doing so, Jesus shows his power not only over all created elements, but as a friend once pointed out to me, over the very effects of time itself. 
that in an instant Jesus does what would have taken years for men to accomplish. And if this had just been a bottle of wine, perhaps we could write it off as a parlor trick, but Jesus turns 150 gallons of water into wine. This wasn't something that was up his sleeve. This was the God who had spoken the world into existence, demonstrating that his power extended to every element of his creation. In fact, we're told that this was such an incredible demonstration that in John chapter 1, verse 11, maybe chapter 2, verse 11, rather, it said this, this is the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and he manifested his glory. And notice the next phrase, and his disciples believed in him. So why, of all of the miracles of Jesus, is there a big deal made about turning water into wine? Because it's at this moment that something so amazing and so astonishing happens that his own disciples in this moment place their faith in him. Where they recognize, perhaps for the first time in all of their conversations with Jesus, there is something inherently different. This is the mighty God. See, Christianity is not the faith of the gullible. It is the faith of those who have seen and known the immeasurable power of the God of the universe in Jesus Christ. Now we could go on for hours, literally hours, working through the miracles of Jesus Christ, but let me just draw your attention to one big idea. Understand that when we see Jesus performing miracles in Scripture, there are two things he's doing. First, he is demonstrating his authority over everything. I mean, think for a moment about the story of Jesus at sea with the disciples. These are men who are familiar with the sea. They're men who are fishermen by trade. These guys know their craft. They know their skill set. These are not newbies when it comes to sailing. These are guys who know what they are doing. And they find themselves out in the middle of the sea. Jesus says, I'm going to go take a nap in the lower portion of the boat. And as he's sleeping, a storm comes out of nowhere. An incredibly powerful storm, so powerful, in fact, that these men who had been fishermen by trade are terrified that their lives are at risk. And so they seek out Jesus and they come down to him and they say, Jesus, don't you even care that we're about to die? And Jesus walks to the top of the boat and he looks out over the water as, it's, as the waves are beating against the ship and the lightning's crashing. And he says, peace, be still. And the winds stop, and the waves calm, and the skies clear. And those who are gathered see him in that moment and say, What manner of man is this? That even the winds and the seas obey him. And no doubt, as Jewish men, they couldn't help but think back of the stories that they'd heard as children about God bringing Moses and the people into the promised land. And as they were running from the armies of Egypt, as they came up to the Red Sea, God parts the waters as if they were walls. And the people walk across on dry ground. And in this moment, they realize afresh and anew, this is the mighty God. See, Jesus' miracles were not performed for the purpose of entertaining passers-by. This isn't a magic show. 
He is doing these things to demonstrate that everything is under his control. He's declaring in and through those actions, I am the king. And it's with that truth in mind that Jesus, in giving us the great commission, begins not with the command of go into all the world, but with the declaration, all authority has been given to me. The same God who calls us to declare and preach and share the gospel that he's given us, to love and care for those that he's placed around us, to serve those in whose midst we find ourselves, that that very self-same God is the one who's in control of everything. And it's only in that context that we can take the words of Christ where he says, come to me, all who labor, and I will give you rest. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. See, the commands of God cannot be light unless we understand that the one giving the commands has all the power. That all the results and all the power and all the movement is created by him. And so we can live according to that invitation. But in his miracles, not only is he declaring his authority over all things, he is also demonstrating the work of redemption and restoration that only God in human flesh could accomplish. I mean, you think about all the miracles that he performed. You think about him restoring sight to the blind. You think about him taking someone who had leprosy and restoring them, literally not just removing an illness, but people whose, whose body parts had begun to fall off. He restores. You think about all of the ways that God demonstrates, or that Christ rather demonstrates uh, the restoration that only God could bring about, and it's a declaration of who He is. We think about all of those things, and yet there's something even greater than that that Christ wants us to understand. We find it in Matthew 9, and here's the story. Some people brought to Him a paralytic, a man who'd been paralyzed, who's lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son. Your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. But Jesus, listen to this phrase, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven? Or to say, rise and walk, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then said to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and went home. And when the crowd saw it, they were afraid, and they glorified God who had given such authority to men. with all the miracles he performed and all the wonders people had seen, the greatest miracle that Jesus Christ brings is the one that he performs whenever he says to a spiritually lost and dead person, your sins are forgiven. Authority even over the effects and penalty of sin itself. This is the whole idea of the incarnation of Jesus. That the mighty God made himself a man and became one of us to save us. 
And we could go on for hours with stories, but here's how John closes out his description of the works of Christ. In John chapter 20, beginning in verse 30, here's what he writes. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. See, in the beginning of the Old Testament, we're given the commands and the laws and the instructions so that we might know who the living God is. And in the beginning of the New Testament, we're given grace through Christ that we may be able to know Him, not through a priest and not through a temple and not through a church, but personally. And at the end of the New Testament, we're given a glimpse of the future where we will see Him face to face, where we'll dwell with Him, where the same hands that formed the universe and the same hands that were nailed to the cross become the hands that wipe away every tear from our eyes. So the invitation, brothers and sisters, is to see Christ as the mighty God that He is. Oh, that in this season that is full of so much sentimentality and so much beauty. And neither of those things are wrong, by the way. But oh, that we would see, see Christ as far more than a sentimental being. That we wouldn't stop with seeing him as the smiling, glowing baby in the soft hay of the manger but that we would see in addition the majesty and the glory and the power of God stepping into time to fulfill what he had said he would do before that time began. That Jesus is the mighty God. Would you pray with me? Lord, we thank you for the deep truths of your word. And God, will we love this season for so many reasons. Not least among them the fact that we're reunited with family and friends, that we can be generous with gifts, that we can eat good meals and spend time with those that we love. Would we not, would we not be satisfied in stopping there? And as beautiful and amazing as the incarnation is, where you did come not as a conquering king, but as a humble baby, would we also not forget that that baby grew up? That you did mighty works. That all who would see them would know that you are the God. That you went to the cross. That you rose from the dead. And that we can look forward to a time, according to the book of Revelation, where we are reunited with you where we can touch your hands and see you face to face. We thank you that you are that mighty God. And we pray all these things in your beautiful name. Amen.